Tertium Organum by P. D. Espensky, read by Alice Flanagan, Chapter 13. There exist visible and hidden causes of phenomena. There exist also visible and hidden effects. Let us consider some one example. In all textbooks on the history of literature, we are told that in its time Goethe's Werther provoked an epidemic of suicides. What did provoke these suicides? Let us imagine that some scientist appears who, being interested in the fact of the increase of suicides, begins to study the first edition of Werther according to the method of exact positive science. He weighs the book, measures it by the most precise instruments, notes the number of its pages, makes a chemical analysis of the paper and the ink, counts the number of lines on every page, the number of letters, and how many times the letter A is repeated, how many times the letter B, and how many times the interrogation mark is used, and so on. In other words, he does everything that the pious Mohammedan performs with relation to the Quran of Muhammad, and on the basis of his investigations, writes a treatise on the relation of the letter A of the German alphabet to suicide. Well, let us imagine another scientist who studies the history of painting, and deciding to put it on a scientific basis, starts a lengthy series of analysis of the pigment used in the pictures of the famous painter in order to discover the causes of the different impressions produced upon the beholder by different pictures. Imagine a savage studying a watch. Let us admit that he is a wise and crafty savage. He takes the watch apart and counts all its wheels and screws, counts the number of teeth in each gear, finds out its size and thickness. The only thing he does not know is what all these things are for. He does not know that the hand completes the circuit of the dial in half of 24 hours, i.e. that it is possible to tell time by means of a watch. All this is positivism. We are too familiar with positivistic methods and so fail to realise that they end in absurdities and if we are seeking to explain the meaning of anything, they do not lead to the goal at all. The difficulty is that for the explanation of the meaning, positivism is of no use. For it, nature is a closed book of which it studies the appearance only. In the matter of the study of the operations of nature, the positive methods have achieved much, as is proven by the innumerable successes of modern techniques, including the conquest of the air. But everything in the world has its own definite sphere of action. Positivism is very good when it seeks an answer to a question of how something operates under given conditions. But when it makes an attempt to get outside of its definite conditions, space, time, causation, or presumes to affirm that nothing exists outside of these given conditions, then it is transcending its own proper sphere. It is true that the more serious positive thinkers deny the possibility of including in positive investigation the question of why and what for. The search for meaning, and for that which is the aim and end of teleology, is regarded by the positive philosopher as little short of absurd. This is indeed the more true because from the positive standpoint, teleology is indeed an absurdity. But as a matter of fact, the positive standpoint is not the only possible one. The usual mistake of positivism consists in it not seeing anything except itself. It either considers everything as possible to it, or considers as generally impossible much that is entirely possible but not for positive inquiry. Humanity will never cease to search, however, for answered questions why and wherefore. The positivistic scientist finds himself in the presence of nature almost in the position of a savage in a library of rare and valuable books. 
For a savage, a book is a thing of definite size and weight. However long he may ask himself what purpose this strange thing serves, he will never discover the truth from its appearance, and the contents of the book will remain to him an incomprehensible nunanum. In like manner, the contents of nature are incomprehensible to the positivistic scientist. But if a man knows of the existence of the contents of the book, the nunanum of life, if he knows that a mysterious meaning is hidden under visible phenomena, there is the possibility that in the long run he will discover the contents. For success in this, it is necessary to grasp the idea of the inner contents, i.e. meaning of the thing in itself. The scientist who discovers little tablets with hieroglyphics or wedge-shaped inscriptions in an unknown language deciphers and reads them after great labours. And in order to accomplish this, he needs only one thing. It is necessary for him to know that these little signs represent an inscription. So long as he regards them simply as an ornament, as the outside embellishment of little tablets, or as an accidental tracing without meaning, up to that time their meaning and significance will be closed to him absolutely. But let him only assume the existence of that meaning and the possibility of its comprehension will be already within sight. No secret cipher exists which cannot be solved without the aid of any key. But it is necessary to know that it is a cipher. This is the first and necessary condition. Lacking this, it is impossible to accomplish anything. The idea of the existence of the visible and the hidden sides of life was known to philosophy long ago. Phenomena was regarded as only one aspect of the world, seeming, not existing really, arising in consciousness at the moment of its contact with the real world. Another side, noumena, was recognised as really existing in itself, but inaccessible for our receptivity. But there is no greater error than to regard the world as divided into phenomena and noumena, to conceive of phenomena and noumena apart from one another, and susceptible to being separately known. This is philosophic illiteracy, which shows itself most clearly in the dualistic, spiritualistic theories. The division into phenomena and noumena exists only in our minds. The phenomenal world is simply our incorrect perception of the world. As Karl Duprella said, the world beyond is this world only perceived strangely. It would be more accurate to say that this world is the world beyond perceived strangely. Kant's idea is quite correct that the study of the phenomenal side of the world will not bring us any nearer to the understanding of the things in themselves. The thing in itself, that is, the thing as it exists in itself, independently of us. The phenomenon of the thing, that is, the thing in such semblance as we perceive it. The example of a book in the hands of an illiterate savage shows us quite clearly that it is sufficient not to know about the existence of the noumenon of a thing, the contents of the book in this case, in order that it shall not manifest itself in phenomena. On the other hand, the knowledge of its existence is sufficient to make possible its discovery with the aid of the very phenomena which, without the knowledge of the noumena, would be perfectly useless. Just as it is impossible for a savage to attain an understanding of the nature of a watch by the study of its phenomenal side, the number of wheels and the number of teeth in each gear, so also, for the positivistic scientist, studying the external, manifesting side of life, its secret raison d'etre and the aim of separate manifestations will be forever hidden. To the savage, the watch will be an extremely interesting, complicated but entirely useless toy. Somewhat after this manner, a man appears to the scientist materialist. 
a mechanism infinitely more complex but equally unknown as regards to the purpose for which it exists and in the manner of its creation. We pictured to ourselves how incomprehensible the functions of a candle and of a coin would be for a plain man, studying two similar circles on his plane. In like manner, the functions of a man are incomprehensible to the scientist studying him as a mechanism. The reason for this is clear. It is because the coin and the candle are not two similar circles, but quite different objects, having an entirely different use and meaning in the world which is relatively higher than the plane. And man is not a mechanism, but something having an aim and meaning in a world relatively higher than the visible one. The functions of the candle and the coin in our world are for the imaginary plain man an inaccessible nunanum. It is evident that the phenomenon of a circle cannot give any understanding of the function of a candle and its difference from the function of a coin. But the two-dimensional knowledge exists not alone on the plane. Materialistic thought tries to apply it to real life. A curious result follows, the true meaning of which is, unhappily, incomprehensible to many people. One of such applications is the economic man. This is quite clearly the two-dimensional and flat being moving in two directions, those of production and consumption, i.e. living upon the plane of production-consumption. How is it possible to imagine man in general as such an obviously artificial being? And how is it possible to hope to understand the laws of the life of man with his complex spiritual aspirations and his great impulse to know, to understand everything around about him and within himself by studying the imaginary laws of the imaginary being upon an imaginary plane. The inventors of this theory alone possess the secret of the answer to this question. But the economic theory of human life attracts men as do all simple theories giving a short answer to a series of complicated questions. And we ourselves are too entangled in materialistic theories to see anything beyond them. Positivistic science, in essence, does not deny the theory of phenomena and noumena. It only affirms, in opposition to Kant, that in studying phenomena, we are gradually approaching to noumena. The noumena of phenomena science considers to be the motion of atoms in the ether, or the vibration of electrons. It conceives of the universe as a whirl of mechanical motion, or the field of manifestation of electromagnetic energy, taking on the phenomenal tint for us on their reception by the organs of sense. Materialism or energetics affirm that the phenomena of life and of consciousness are simply the functions of physical phenomena, that without physical phenomena the phenomena of life and the consciousness cannot exist and that they represent only certain complex combinations of the foregoing. Materialism affirms that the phenomena of consciousness are created out of the external irritations refracted in a living organism that all psychic and spiritual life has evolved out of the simple irritability of a cell, i.e. out of the faculty to respond by motion to extraneous irritation, that all these three kinds of phenomena are one and the same thing in substance, and the higher, i.e. the phenomena of life and of consciousness, are only different expressions of the lower, i.e. of one and the same energy. But to all this it is possible to answer one thing. If it were true, it would have been proven long ago. Nothing is easier to prove than the energetic hypothesis of life and consciousness. Just create life and consciousness by the mechanical method. Materialism and energetics are those obvious theories which cannot be true without proofs, because they cannot not have proofs if they contain even a little grain of truth. But there are no proofs at the disposition of these theories. Quite the reverse. 
the infinitely greater potentiality of the phenomena of life and of consciousness compared with the physical phenomena assures us of an exact opposite. And we have the full right to declare that energetics is just as subjective a theory as any doctrine of dogmatic theology. The simple fact above shown of the enormous liberating unbinding force of the phenomena of consciousness is sufficient to establish quite really and firmly the problem of the world of the hidden. And the world of the hidden cannot be the world of unconscious mechanical motion, of unconscious development of electromagnetic forces. The positivistic theory admits the possibility of explaining the higher through the lower, the invisible through the visible. But it has been shown at the very beginning that this is the explanation of one unknown by another unknown. There is still less justification for explaining the known through the unknown. Yet that lower matter and motion through which the positivists strive to explain the higher life and thought is itself unknown. Consequently, it is impossible to explain and define anything else in terms of it, while the higher, i.e. the thought, this is our soul known. It is this alone that we do know, that we are conscious of in ourselves, that we can neither mistake nor doubt. And if thought can evoke or unbind physical energy, emotion can never create or unbind thought. Out of the revolving will, no thought ever arose. So of course we can strive to define not the higher in terms of the lower, but the lower in terms of the higher. If the invisible, like the contents of the book or the purpose of a watch, defines by itself the visible, so also shall we endeavour to understand not the visible, but the invisible. Starting from a false assumption concerning the mechanicality of the numinal side of nature, positive science upon which the view of the world of the intelligent majority of contemporary humanity is founded, makes still another mistake in regard to cause and effect, or the law of functions. That is, it mistakes what is cause and what is effect. Just as the two-dimensional plane man thinks of all phenomena touching his consciousness as laying in one plane, so the positivistic scientist strives to interpret upon one plane all phenomena of different orders, i.e. to interpret all visible phenomena as the effects of other visible phenomena, and as the inevitable cause of subsequent visible phenomena. In other words, he sees in casual and functional independence merely phenomena proceeding upon the surface, and studies the visible world, or the phenomena of the visible world, not admitting that causes can enter into the world which are not contained in it, or that the phenomena of this world can possess functions extending beyond it. But this could be true only in case there were no phenomena of life and of consciousness in the world, or if the phenomena of life and of consciousness were really derivatives from physical phenomena, and did not possess infinitely greater latent force than they. Then only would we have the right to consider the chains of phenomena in their physical or visible sequence alone, as positivistic science does. But taking into consideration the phenomena of life and of consciousness, we shall inevitably recognise that the chain of phenomena often translates itself from a sequence purely physical to a biological sequence, i.e. one in which there is much of the hidden and invisible to us, or to a psychological sequence where there is even more of the hidden. But during reverse translations from biological and psychological spheres into physical sequences, actions proceed often, if not always, from regions which are hidden from us, i.e. the cause of the visible is the invisible. In consequence of this, we must admit that it is impossible to consider the chains of sequences in the world of physical phenomena only. When this sequence touches the life of a man, 
or that of a human society, we perceive clearly that it escapes from the physical sphere and returns into it. Regarding the matter from this standpoint, we see that just as in the life of one man and in the life of a society, there are many streams at times appearing on the surface and sprouting up in boisterous torrents, and in other times disappearing deep underground, hidden from view, but only waiting for their moment to appear again on the surface. We observe in the world continuous chains of phenomena, and we perceive how these chains shift from one order of phenomena to another without a break. We observe how the phenomena of consciousness, thoughts, feelings, desires, are accompanied by physiological phenomena, creating them perhaps, and inaugurate a series of purely physical phenomena. And we see how physical phenomena, becoming the object of sensations of sight, hearing, touch, smell and the like, introduce physiological phenomena, and then psychological. But looking at life from that side, we see only physical phenomena, and having assured ourselves this is the only reality, we may not notice the others at all. Herein appears the enormous power of suggestion in current ideas. To a sincere positivist, any metaphysical argument provoking the unreality of matter or energy seems sophistry. It strikes him as a thing unnecessary, disagreeable, hindering a logical train of thought, an assault without aim or meaning on that which in his opinion is firmly established, alone immutable, lying at the foundation of everything. He vexedly fans away from himself all idealistic or mystical theories, as he would buzzing mosquito. But the fact is that thought and energy are different in substance and cannot be the one and the same thing, because thought is a subjective phenomenon and energy an objective one. For if we open the cranium of a living man in order to observe all the vibrations of the cells of the grey matter of the brain and all the quivering white fibres, in spite of everything, there will be merely motion, and thought will remain somewhere beyond the limits of investigation, retreating like a shadow at every approach. The positivist, when he begins to realise this, feels that the ground is quaking underneath his feet, feels that by this method he will never approach to the thought. Then he sees clearly the necessity for a new method. As soon as he begins to think about it, he begins quite unexpectedly to notice things around him which he did not see before. His eyes begin to open to that which he did not wish to see before. The walls which he had erect around himself begin to fall one after another, and behind the falling walls infinite horizons of possible knowledge, hitherto undreamed of, unroll before him. Thereupon he completely alters his view of everything surrounding him. He understands that the visible is produced by the invisible, and that without understanding the invisible it is impossible to understand the visible. His positivism begins to totter, and if he is a man with a bold thought, then in some splendid moment he will perceive these things which he was wont to regard as real and true, to be unreal and false, and those things regarded as false to be real and true. First of all, he will see that manifested physical phenomena often hide themselves like a stream which has gone underground. Yet they do not disappear altogether, but continue to exist in latent form in some consciousness, in somebody's memory, or in the words of books of someone, just as the future harvest is latent in the seeds. And therefore they again burst into life. Out of this latent state they come into an apparent one, making a roar, reverberation, motion. We observe such transitions of the invisible into the visible in the personal life of man, 
in the life of peoples and in the history of humanity. These chains of events go on continuously, interweaving among themselves, entering into one another, sometimes hidden from our eyes and sometimes visible. I find an artistic description of this idea in the chapter of Karma in Light on the Path by Mabel Collins. And this is asterisked by Spensky, Theosophical Publishing Company, London, 1912, pages 96 to 98. And Spensky quotes, Consider with me that the individual existence is a rope which stretches from the infinite to the infinite and has no end and no commencement, neither is it capable of being broken. This rope is formed of innumerable fine threads which lying closely together form its thickness. And remember that the threads are living, are like electric wires, more are like quivering nerves. But eventually the long strands, the living threads, which in their unbroken continuity form the individual, pass out of the shadow into the shine. This illustration presents but a small portion, a single side of the truth. It is less than a fragment, yet dwell on it, and by its aid you may be led to perceive more. What is necessary first to understand is not that the future is formed by any separate acts of the present, but that the whole of the future is in unbroken continuity with the present, and the present is with the past. In the plane, from one point of view, the illustration of the rope is correct. End of quote. The passages quoted show us that the idea of karma, developed in remote antiquity by Hindu philosophy, embodies the idea of the unbroken consecutiveness of phenomena. Each phenomenon, no matter how insignificant, is a link in an infinite and unbroken chain, extending from the past into the future, passing from one sphere into another, sometimes manifesting as physical phenomena, sometimes hiding in the phenomena of consciousness. If we regard karma from the standpoint of our theory of time and space of many dimensions, then the connection between distant events will cease to be wonderful and incomprehensible. If events most distant from one another in relation to time touch one another in the fourth dimension, this means that they are proceeding simultaneously as cause and effect, and the walls dividing them are just an illusion which our weak intellect cannot conquer. Things are united, not by time, but by an inner connection, an inner correlation. And time cannot separate those things which are inwardly near following one from another. Certain other properties of these things force us to think of them as being separated by the ocean of time. But we know that this ocean does not exist in reality, and we begin to understand how and why the events of one millennium can directly influence the events of another millennium. The hidden activity of events becomes comprehensible to us. We understand that the events must become hidden in order to preserve for us the illusion of time. We know this know that the events of today were the ideas and feelings of yesterday, and the events of tomorrow are lying in someone's irritation, in someone's hunger, in someone's suffering, and possibly still more in someone's imagination, in someone's fantasy, in someone's dreams. We know all this, yet nevertheless our positive science obstinately seeks to establish correlations between visible phenomena only i.e. to regard each visible or physical phenomena as the effect of some other physical phenomena only, which is also visible. This tendency to regard everything upon one plane, the unwillingness to recognise anything outside of that plane, horribly narrows our view of life, 
prevents our grasping it in its entirety, and taken in conjunction with the materialistic attempts to account for the higher as a function of the lower, appears as the principal impediment to the development of our knowledge, the chief cause of the dissatisfaction with science, the complaints about the bankruptcy of science, and its actual bankruptcy in many of its relations. The dissatisfaction with science is perfectly well grounded, and the complaints about its insolvency are entirely just, because science has really entered a cul-de-sac out of which there is no escape. And the official recognition of the fact that the direction it has taken is entirely the wrong one is only a question of time. Let us take a simple example which involves an interrelation between all three kinds of phenomena known to us, physical phenomena, the phenomena of life, and the phenomena of consciousness, and let us see how positivistic science regards them. Imagine that you are standing at a window and see a man on the street shooting a revolver at another man. The whole chain of events comes evidently from afar, proceeding from a past unknown to you and going into an unknown future. The chain is quite continuous and indivisible. The shot is a link in this chain. But when science considers the shot, it takes it entirely out of that chain, a link of which constitutes this phenomenon, and constructs its own chain of phenomena, in which, according to the view of science, the shot properly belongs. Thus it places these phenomena in false relation to one another, because it will include in its chain physical phenomena only. The shot is a link in an infinite chain of phenomena, this much science admits, but as regards the shot, science considers it as something finite, having a beginning and an end, because it has neither means nor methods for dealing with an infinite series. It is true that mathematics, which positivistic science places at the very foundation of its edifice, establishes with the utmost exactitude that infinite magnitudes are subject to entirely different laws from finite ones, and that it is impossible to deal with finite magnitudes as with infinite ones. This fact science cannot deny in theory, but in practice, in its conclusions, science does not consider it at all, but obstinately endeavours to regard every phenomenon as finite. So it is also in this given case. What is the shot from the standpoint of science? The movement of the trigger and the spring, the impact of the hammer upon the cartridge, the explosion of gases, the expulsion of the bullet, the sound from the vibrations of the air, the flight of the bullet and the encounter with something in its path. That is all that is visible from the positivistic standpoint, but of what chain of phenomena will it be a link if regarded in this manner? The physicist will say that the cause of the shot is an explosive force contained in the powder, i.e. its ability to transform itself quickly into a gaseous state, giving an enormous amount of gas in comparison with the volume of the containing solid. He will explain why this happens thus. He will give the constitution of powder, will tell from whence and in what manner the energy developed in the shot was accumulated into powder. Then he will investigate the primer and in conclusion will establish that the impulse to the liberation of energy developed during the shot was the contraction of the muscles of the finger which pressed the trigger. The trifling amount of energy expended in this slight motion was undoubtedly drawn from the world surrounding us, taken in with the food and air. Possibly at the pressing of the trigger by the finger that energy acted which was contained in a piece of meat eaten the day before. Regarding the consequences of the shot, science would say that the escape of gases produced the vibrations in the air 
and that the force put into the shot went into the rupturing of the flesh, bones and sinews of the body of another man. All this is not a caricature. It is a perfectly exact description of the scientific method of investigating phenomena. Science, so long as it remains itself, cannot say anything more. But let us see how such an investigation of the shot corresponds with reality. Let us seek really the chains of which the shot is a link. Here we come to the recognition of a highly important fact. The shot is a link in very many chains. Positivistic science recognises only one of them, the chain of physical consecutiveness. While in reality the shot is the point of intersection of many lines, a link belonging to the many intercrossing chains. Let us examine these chains. First of all, let us find out if we may regard it as a fact that the shot is a link in many chains, in many series of phenomena. The chain of physical sequence which science considers is not a causal chain, i.e. is not the chain of precedent causes which led to the shot. It is the chain of means which created the possibility of the phenomenon of the shot. This is a chain of the accumulation of physical energy liberated during the shot. But this energy liberated something else. This energy liberated the feeling burning in the soul of the person who fired the shot at the moment of firing his desire to shoot, his determination to shoot. The desire and the determination are phenomena of consciousness. They are engendered through the influence of many antecedent circumstances, and the series of these antecedent circumstances into which entered both the phenomena of consciousness and the physical phenomena itself represents the causal chain of the shot, i.e. the chain of causes which engendered the phenomena of the shot, which liberated all the latent energies, the muscular force of the finger and the explosive force of powder, acting at the moment of the shot. In that shot, a series of obscure and hidden phenomena of consciousness, the desire for revenge, rage, hate, fear, found their expression in a physical phenomenon. A stream from underground burst through the surface. Unquestionably, the shot is a link in many events. Possibly, it is the result of a plot. Perhaps it was provoked by passion and jealousy. Perhaps the man shot to defend himself or another. Perhaps he acted in obedience to his sense of honour. Perhaps he was swayed by personal emotions. In any case, the shot had its history in the past and will have an influence upon the future. After it, direct and immediate results follow. The wound inflicted upon another, pain, suffering, perhaps death, the sorrow of his relatives, their anger against the assassin, the examination, the trial. All these are chains of events, one link of which is the shot. If we consider the shot divorced from these categories, we will never understand what the shot as a phenomena really is. Positivistic science, regarding itself as real and exact, is in truth studying an entirely artificial, fantastic world having nothing in common with the real world. In the real world there is nothing separate, all is connected. There is nothing finite, finished, defined. Science studies the shot, taking it as a concept, i.e. taking the common properties of all or nearly all shots. But in the world of reality the shot as a concept does not exist. The logical concept of a shot is simply an artificial something created for ease and reasoning. To study that artificial something, accepting it as real, this means to fall into the sin of materialism, to accept the false for the real. Actually, each shot is a link in its own quite special combination of causal chains, 
and it is impossible to select a single shot, the external, out of this combination of chains. If we do not know or do not see anything except this external sequence, we know only the phenomena of that which has happened in reality, i.e. we know literally nothing. Two phenomena, seemingly exactly similar, may be links of such different causal chains that in reality these phenomena are not only not alike, but they are the direct opposites of one another. To positivistic thinking, all shots are similar, they differ only in their force, but to truly exact investigation, there are no similar shots. We may say, not as an assumption, but as an affirmation, that the world of physical phenomena in itself represents the section, as it were, of another world existing right here, and the events of which are proceeding right here, but invisibly to us. There is nothing more miraculous nor supernatural than life. Consider the street of a great city in all its details. An enormous diversity of facts will result. But how much is hidden underneath these facts of that which it is impossible to see at all? What desires, passions, thoughts, greed, covetousness? How much of suffering, both petty and great? How much deceit, falsity? How much of lying? How many invisible threads, sympathies, antipathies, interests bind this street with the entire world? If we realise this imaginatively, then it will become clear that it is impossible to study the street by that which is visible alone. It is necessary to plunge into the depths. The complex and enormous phenomena of the street will not reveal its infinite noumenon, which is bound up both with eternity and with time, with the past and with the future, and with the entire world. Therefore, we have full right to regard the visible phenomenal world as a section of some other infinitely more complex world, manifesting itself at a given moment in the first one. And this world of noumena is infinite and incomprehensible for us, just as the three-dimensional world, in all its manifoldness of function, is incomprehensible to the two-dimensional being. The nearest approach to truth which is possible for man is contained in the saying, everything has an infinite variety of meanings, and to know all of them is impossible. In other words, truth, as we understand it, i.e. the finite definition, is possible only in a finite series of phenomena. In an infinite series, it will certainly become its own opposite. Hegel has given utterance to this last thought. Every idea extended into infinity becomes its own opposite. In this change of meaning is contained the cause of the incomprehensibility to man of the noumenal world. The noumenon of a thing, i.e. a thing in itself, contains an infinite quantity of meanings and functions of something which is impossible to grasp with our mind. And in addition to this, it involves a change of meaning of one and the same thing. In one meaning, it represents an enormous whole, including within itself a great number of things. In another meaning, it is an insignificant part of a great whole. Our mind cannot bind all of this into one. Therefore, the noumenon of a thing recedes from us according to the measure of our knowledge, just as a shadow flees before us. Light on the path says... You will enter the light, but you will never touch the flame. This means that all knowledge is relative. We can never grasp all the meanings of any one thing, because in order to grasp them at all, it is necessary for us to grasp the whole world with all the variety of meanings contained in it. The principal difference between the phenomenal and noumenal aspects of the world is contained in the fact that the first one is always limited, always finite, 
It includes those properties of a given thing which we can generally know as phenomena. The second, or noumenal aspect, is always unlimited, always infinite. And we can never say where the hidden functions and the hidden meaning of a given thing end. Properly speaking, they end nowhere. They may vary infinitely, i.e. may seem various, ever new from some new standpoint, but they cannot utterly vanish any more than they can cease, come to an end. All that is highest, which we shall come in understanding of the meaning, the significance of the soul of any phenomenon, will again have another meaning from another still higher standpoint in still broader generalisation, and there is no end to it. In this is the majesty and the horror of infinity. Let us also remember that the world as we know it does not represent anything stable. It must change with the slightest change in the forms of our knowledge. Phenomena which appear to us as unrelated can be seen by some other more inclusive consciousness as parts of a single whole. Phenomena which appear to us as similar may reveal themselves as entirely different. Phenomena which appear to us as complete and indivisible may be in reality exceedingly complex, may include within themselves different elements having nothing in common. And all these together may be one whole in a category quite incomprehensible to us. Therefore, beyond our view of things, another view is possible. A view, as it were, from another world, from over there, from the other side. Now, over there does not mean some other place, but a new method of knowledge, a new consciousness. And should we regard phenomena, not as isolated, but bound together with intercrossing chains of things and events, we would begin to regard them not from over here, but from over there. End of chapter 13